Science is the great antidote to the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. Hi, I'm Juliette Selgren, and this is my podcast, The Great Antidote, named for Adam Smith, brought to you by Liberty Fund. To learn more, visit www.adamsmithworks.org. Welcome back. Today on January 15th, 2024, happy MLK Day, we are going to get into a topic that seems like a no-brainer for this podcast, and yet we have not talked about it yet. That's going to be Adam Smith on education, and I don't know, it's so weird because the quote of the podcast is about education. Adam Smith is also the the author of the quote. Um and we talk about Smith a lot, and we talk about teaching a lot. So I'm excited to welcome the wonderful Alice Temnick on the podcast to talk about the subject and so much more. She teaches IB economics for the United Nations International School in Manhattan, and she's an education consultant with Liberty Fund's Adam Smith Works. She warned me, and I warned her, and back and forth. So I'm warning all of you that this could very well extend into a multi-episode exploration of Adam Smith and teaching, and specifically teaching economics. So let's see where we get today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Juliet. I'm honored to be here. I'm so glad that I get to finally ask you this question on air. What is the most important thing that people my age or in my generation should know that we don't? Yes. Um, it would be an answer that I think a lot of your guests have given, but my take on it might be a little bit different. Um, and it's about reading. It's about reading deeply and reading when you become interested in the topic, not putting it off and thinking, hey, down the road, I'm going to have more time to explore this. I'll buy a couple of books and put them on my shelf and get to that later. It's to Embrace that feeling of when something captures you so much that it's bothering you. You want to fit this new idea into what is your current set of knowledge. And my, I guess, suggestion is to go down that rabbit hole at the time that you have that energy and that that interest. Um, have multiple books going at once. Borrow books. Pay library fines. Um, ask people for the referrals. Do book clubs even personal one-on-one -on -one book clubs. And, and when you give a book to someone else to want to talk about it, be specific about, hey, in, in this chapter 13 or in this idea. And I guess it's just to encourage that the habit of reading should form around your excitement and your interests, not just the prescribed reading and such that we all do through uh, education. Mm. So yeah, I think that would be what uh, what I would answer there. And and you're always giving such great book recommendations. Um I'm not I'm not surprised at all um oh, given you. who who you work with and what you do. But <laughs> what have you been reading recently? Oh my goodness. Um let's see. Recently, um I always have a a book club book going part of the no due date with the incredible uh Pete Becky and uh Amy Willis who come up with just wonderful choices that we're involved with a discussion with each month. Um, so right now, um, a nice deep dive into man's search for meaning, right? Victor Frankl. Um, I'm also just finishing an excellent work of fiction that I definitely want more of my economist friends to read. Um, Trust, 
um, by Hernan Diaz, a Pulitzer Prize winner that I'm kind of late to the party about. That's over a year old. Um, let's see what else am I reading? I've got something else just started there. But yeah, typically three or four things at once. And that's not including the audio book that I do a little bit of my commute on the ferry back and forth to work. And yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and then these are great. You, you've given recommendations like Bono's biography, autobiography. I don't remember. Oh point. yeah. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Things that I would never necessarily think to pick up, but coming from you, then I do think to pick it up and I, I'm never upset about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Your recommendations are great too, Juliet. I remember both of our conversations and the two terrific times I got to meet you in 2023. Uh, of course, we talked endlessly, but a lot of it was about books and uh, our influences and what we wish people uh, read more of. And yeah, it's exciting. So let's get into Smith. Um, I was thinking kind of to introduce this, that we're going to do a partly biographical Smith related and partly autobiographical mm -hmm. you related type of um, beginning of this conversation where I ask questions that go for both of you because so, some of your stories are are kind of parallel to one another um, in, in similar and different ways. So we'll take Smith, then we'll take you, and and maybe what he's taught you or or ideas that you have differently. Um, and I guess to, to start, <laughs> as I've started teaching econ, I've started to grasp what really makes a good learner and what makes a good teacher. And what strikes me as funny is that some of the best teachers in history obviously had to start out as learners. I guess all teachers had to start out as learners at one point. And I, I guess it's it's not obvious. At least it wasn't obvious to me. And so it was a funny thought. Um, but can we start with what Smith's background was as a student and a learner before he became a teacher? And, and what were some of the pivotal moments and the people that influenced him along the way? Oh, I, I love that question. Um, I love biographies and autobiographies, especially the beginning of all of them. I'm deeply interested in perhaps why I spend my life in high school um, with what shapes people and, you know, our influence in our families and our homes all the way up to that age 18 before the quote formal training of college. I'm so, so interested in. Um, so uh, let's see. Let's start back with. Um, Smith's mother, um, Smith's father died prior to him being born. And he was raised by a mother, single mother, um, who was well off. She did come from a landowning family. And Smith's father, a customs controller, had a good degree of money. So um, for a single mother in Kirkcuddy, Scotland, typically looked like it's pronounced Kirkcaldy, but I've been corrected by many a Scot that Kirkcaldy <laughs> is how we say that. Um, so what do we know about the beginning of Smith's life? Um, he was a sickly child and, and mother was very protective of him. There's the famous story that I won't get into because everybody's read about it and heard about it, of a little kidnapping when he was three and immediately returned. More interesting, I have found tidbits about the fact that his friends talked about him as having an incredible memory, no surprise, um, that he was a very amiable soul and he didn't 
play with the other boys, so to speak, I guess, in physical activities as much, I guess, because of the sickliness. But at age 13, this nugget, I think, is pretty cool. Um, he was uh, reading and deeply devoted to and probably had a dog-eared copy of Epictetus. Now, there's two works of Epictetus. I'm guessing that it's discourses because I've spent some time with the, uh, especially the table of contents of Epictetus's work and wondering what a 13-year-old would just love about this (laughs) stoic. Um, And in a really quick nutshell, again, I've gone down this rabbit hole separately. Epictetus was a slave and then a former slave. And uh, unsurprisingly, he wrote a lot about um, what was fulfillment in life and um, uh, sort of integrity and our uh, own self-determination. And so this fascinated a 13-year-old boy. So this early influence, and if we can think back to what were those books, like when you were a preteen that just should add, he was a slave and, of course, was completely against slavery, uh, which I think shaped very early Smith's thinking of self-management, uh, um, liberty, etc. Um, oh, and the other thing about Epictetus is that he was known as being a great teacher. People came from all over the world to listen to Epictetus, this uh, ancient Greek stoic. So uh, we know that Smith attended a, a, one of the parish schools of Scotland, and there's nothing light about two things about that. First of all, the schools were excellent in comparison to, well, other places, Western Europe and even in England. Um, They were taught in Latin. That was from the uh, Christianity history. And um, many more men than women were educated. But there is a good chance that Smith's mother was not only trained in reading and writing as not many, but especially landowning family women were, um, but that was ra- rather sophisticated. And so we know that these parish schools where fees were paid for attendance, a very important topic to Smith later in life, um, were excellent. And so he was well-read. And then he goes off to Glasgow at age 14, which to us in the modern day sounds like it's you know a really big deal. That was a typical age. He was actually a little bit old for doing that. But one of the things that I only learned kind of recently about his experience at Glasgow was not that he was deeply influenced by a great mentor there. Um, This is probably the second most important person in his life after his mother is Hutchinson. We've all read about Francis Hutchinson and, you know, his influence. But I came upon, I I think it's E.G. West, and I should jot down why I know some of these weird facts. Hutchinson was also known for this sparkling personality. He was animated and he was, um, you know, just he attracted large audiences. And if I can say this word, uh, he was a badass. Um, Of course you can say that word. (laughs) Oh, good. Instead of teaching in Latin, he was one of the first to teach in English, right? And to teach about moral goodness, promoting happiness, sort of, you know, not the full Christian A-OK thing. But really cool is that he was seen as like a hero to students. And this is when Smith was here. And we don't know what role Smith had in this, but I'm guessing he was part of this crew. The students defended Hutchinson um, in front of the Presbytery, the Presbyterian Church. Um, uh, Hutchinson was a hero to them. And obviously influenced many of them, but certainly Smith with that love of liberty and free expression and and um, 
reason, et cetera, all of our incredible enlightenment ideas. But the fact that he was exposed to this vivacious, incredible, um, charismatic teacher when he was 14, I think is really important to the story of him as a learner um, and as an eventual teacher, of course. Um, then he won a scholarship out of Glasgow to go to Oxford at age 17, which is an appropriate age to do that. And think about where that is, Glasgow, Scotland. He rode on horseback for a couple of days, I assume with a group, down to Oxford. I'm pretty sure the absent-minded Smith wouldn't have pulled that off himself. <laughs> no, um, not at all. And here he must have shown up at Oxford, right, the finest of all schools, so excited. Here's this insatiable learner, so well-read through his parish schools, trained in Glasgow. He, he had other wonderful teachers at Glasgow. There were at least three or four that were you know, these renowned teachers and mentors, but it was Hutchinson that really that stood out and influenced him the most. So he gets to Oxford and um, <laughs> terrible experience. Any freshman that you've taught talked to that has gone off to college and just found that, oh no, this is not at all what I expected. Um, I can only imagine too, there must've been a lot of rainy, gloomy, cold days in the dorm room, etc. cetera. Um, it's well known as he documents this in Wealth of Nations, that not only was it you know a time for him that was intellectual stagnation in terms of what he was learning from teachers, um, but he was downright hostile toward the institution, if you will, of teaching. Um, he found the teachers lazy and reasoned it to the fact that, you know, they weren't answerable to fees. They were paid by the state. Uh, he also just thought, generally speaking, they were very poor choices of people that should be teaching. So he was secluded. He did have a scholarly circle, but he did something now here about his own learning that I found he did later in life when he hit a period of boredom. And that's when he was a private tutor, but we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> so he taught himself. Here he was exposed to one of the greatest libraries in the world. And so for a couple of years, while he, I guess, went to these classes, he became the self-educated uh, polymath that Adam Smith certainly was. Um, he taught himself a bunch of languages and it wasn't so that he could speak them and show off, as he points out more eloquently than I just said. But he did it so that he could translate works and understand the essence of books and institutions and what he was reading about um, in those original languages. Um, he especially liked translating French literature uh, into uh, English, which is interesting because he did later go to France where it was suggested he didn't know the language, but mm, I have found at least something that suggests he, he certainly did. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, so after Oxford, so after this massive self-education that he did in Oxford, he then went back to Kirkuddy. I know my answer is long, but this just gets too exciting. Oh, uh, he goes perfect. back. He goes back to Kirkuddy and hangs out with mom and cousin Janet. Mom is always there. Um, uh, you know, loves him to pieces. He writes letters to her and you know, tells her he needs new socks when he's in college. Like mom is his bestie. <laughs> and so he goes back home. And for two years, he tries to get a job as a, get this, tutor to some noble family. Two years he tries to get a job and nobody wants him. 
Well, one biographer suggests it's because of his, you know, absent-mindedness. He didn't exactly present himself as something that would be your ideal of what you wanted your kid to become. He knew a lot of stuff, but I guess he didn't glow with the personal, I don't know, um, aspects that would have gotten him employed in this. So um, while hanging out at home, while mom and cousin Janet um, took care of all of his needs, he wrote. And it's believed at that time he wrote a lot of what was the um, philosophical subjects, the essays about astronomy and the arts and literature, everything that he read deeply about. Uh, he began um, what would be his um, uh, later, I can't, I think of the full title of lectures and and uh, Belletra. Um, so he writes for two years uh, and then uh, it someone comes upon him. He does meet his friend, David Hume, and he gets to do these lectures in Edinburgh. He's not employed. He's not a uh, professor. He just gets to go into these lecture rooms where a hundred people come and they pay to hear the lecturer. And it's competitive. Like you've got to be pretty darn good if you're going to attract people paying, et cetera. And here's where he starts to hone the skills where he says um, about commanding attention and, um, uh, you know, of course, practicing with his beautiful elocution and he was so well-spoken and was doing these in English. And and so he gets to test out and say, hmm, yeah, I'm pretty good at this. Um, and so lo and behold, he then moves on to Glasgow. And I certainly want to talk a whole lot about how he developed as a teacher there where for he started with kind of an interesting beginning and then moved into 12 years of what was teaching moral philosophy. But let me pause because I talked an awful lot. Is there, let's, um, yeah, how about that for his upbringing, at least to the teaching part? Yeah, no, that's a wonderful um, overview, but it's also so detailed. Uh, I love how you <laughs> threw in all these, all these pieces of information that when else would you learn that? But I'm glad that you're here I, telling us I this. love useless facts. Yes, except they're not <laughs> in this case. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's interesting to me is I think in you recounting Smith's story with this, I kind of had my own moment of connection with him where I was thinking about how as you go through school, even if you mm -hmm. finish after college or even if you finish with high school, you kind of develop this sense of like, a reviewer. You can you can review what you like and what you don't like from different instructors because you've been through so many different people. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe me, where I, I, I see maybe teaching in my future and obviously in my present, um, that, that's mm -hmm. more clear because I spend time thinking about this. And maybe that's part of what drove me to do this. And maybe that's part of what drove him to do that. So I'm wondering... Do you do you kind of feel this? Is this part of how you maybe leaned into teaching? And I guess, can you give us your biographical, uh, autobiographical, sorry, um, kind of story of how how you've learned and how you came into um, being a learner? Wow. Yeah, I love that question. And I'd love you to answer it too, Juliet. So I'll, I'll make mine. Um, 
Yeah, let me try to make that brief. I I grew up as a rather nomadic child. We were moved constantly, a couple of sisters. And the highlight of moving is immediately getting the new library card where we would check out whatever the maximum number of books was and devour them as we were often in a new location, not knowing anybody yet. So my childhood was just a whole lot of a a love of books and reading. at school, a certain, you know, I did well in it, but I don't recall being too influenced by incredibly passionate, terrific teachers. Um, university, a lot of subjects, a lot of classes that were interesting to me. I certainly did my undergrad economics. I got supply and demand and my macro classes and some good labor econ, um, but not thrilling. I, I first started in business. Um I continued a whole lot of reading on my own and all kinds of topics that always interested me. And it was actually in dabbling in graduate school classes that I got my first taste of what would now be called development economics. <clears throat> and uh, uh, it was taught by uh, an um, an African uh, student teacher at University of Pittsburgh, where I was at the time. I was taking classes through Duquesne University. and. He talked without notes of the entire history of his continent, of uh, developing institutions, of trade, of markets, of policies, of influences. And I, I just was so invigorated by the ideas of, um, well, what leads to the wealth of nations is what I was listening to at the time, that um, I thought, whatever that is, whatever that thing is that he's talking about, that's what I want to learn more about. And so that took me down the rabbit hole of their late life and a lot of uh, graduate work in um, uh, economics and all kinds of other things, you know, philosophy, history. I, I love everything. And uh, then I centered on economics and economic education um, and continued work in studying both education and economics and uh, have taught it for over a quarter of a century and um, several very influential teachers in my adult life of going through my education process, more than teachers, mentors, and then my incredible learning in 20 plus years of experience with uh, Liberty Fund and exposure, not only to incredible great works to read, but people to discuss them with, to chew on them with that just encouraged my curiosity and my, my interest in everything kind of like your uh, curiosity and interest in so much, Juliet. So can I throw that question back to you? Yeah, um, it's kind of, it's not something I've reflected on a ton. Yeah. It will be a bit piecemeal, but whether or not I was actually actively reading at any given point in my life, there were books everywhere and there were people talking about ideas everywhere in Mm. my life. And I was just incredibly lucky to grow up in the household that I did with the the mother who, I guess maybe I'm kind of like Adam Smith. I do write to her about, I need new socks, <laughs> but rather I'm texting her. So maybe I have Adam Smith to thank in part for the fact that I'm texting her instead of writing her a letter. <laughs> but she just filled the house with with ideas and with curiosity and with thinking. And I think part of it is, is inherited through the institutions of my household. But part of it was, I guess, inherited genetically, maybe, because I see these traits in in my family members as well, uh, which is just so, uh, 
awesome that I have this kind of like built-in clan of thinkers. Um, yeah. And it's super fun. Um, but my schools have always been super great. From the beginning, um, I still know, I mean, especially in the community I grew up in, I, I didn't move at all. And so we still, like our parents, me and my friend's parents, still know some of my teachers from when I was like six. Um, mm. And they were super influential, even if their influence is different from the sort of influence you get in high school or college. Um, mm-hmm. And there were periods where like reading isn't cool anymore. And then like reading came back into fashion, especially with, mm-hmm. it was before COVID, but with the IB program, which I, I kind of, I, I want to stop before I get too deep into the IB program, because this <laughs> is something that deserves its own exploration um, a little bit later, maybe. Absolutely. And I, I don't know. I I think I had to relearn, starting with teachers influencing me and kind of inspiring me to actually invest in my education, like forced investment into my education and learning. But then when I got to college, and even before that, even with COVID, I kind of had to learn how to self-teach. Um, and that learning is done because it's good for you and because you want to, mm-hmm. and otherwise you can't move a rock that doesn't want to move on its own. Um, or I guess with gravity that maybe that's not the best way to explain that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I do econ. I don't do physics, <laughs> but yeah. Um, I, I got, I went through multiple periods of having, um, I don't want to say forced, but like institutional reliance on educational institutions and Mm -hmm. also different periods of me learning on my own. Um, So I guess to kind of turn, turn this into a question, um, Mm -hmm. how do you think if you were to weigh Smith's learning, the institutions he grew up in, but then Mm -hmm. also something that seems super pivotal, especially to the stuff he actually produced was the time he spent on his own. Um, yeah. And so I guess what does Smith's story and what does your story kind of tell you about learning on your own and the relationship between self-motivation and internal curiosity and the institutions that might inspire you or incentivize you to do so? Yeah, it's a wonderful question. I think to start to answer that, um, I would want to talk about actual teaching, especially the beginning of teaching and all that is learned about that craft. And that's what it is. Yeah. That, it, that is only learned by doing it. And so, so Smith comes from this incredible background, huge wealth of knowledge at, at a time, some suggest when, when the full expanse of knowledge was palatable, right? At least as compared to what's available to learners today. Mm-hmm. Like he truly um, knew so much, um, this boundless knowledge of world scholarship. Yet that does not immediately translate or mean that someone has any idea how to teach. And Smith speaks to that uh, very clearly at one point in Wealth of Nations, too, of talking about how it, it's the teaching over and over again, right? He's talking about specialization of this craft that enables the teacher to get better 
and better and better um, at what they do. That we make improvements at the margin, certainly, um, in how we're delivering information, what we're focusing on. But what he's what we really learn a lot about is that craft part of teaching is that teaching isn't separate from the student learning. It is absolutely an intertwined and beautiful dance and no greater fulfilling experience from any kind of work standpoint um, than that that a teacher gets when the aha moment is happening with students in a classroom, when their curiosity is so deeply bright, when, as um, I think it's John Millar, one of his students described, that Smith would focus on a person sitting in the classroom in front of a post. And when that student was leaning forward, he knew that that's when he was especially engaging his audience and he was delivering what he should be and how. And if the student leaned back and was, you know, kind of, you know, that look that a great teenage student can give you, um, <laughs> he would then mm-hmm. a- adjust and he would recognize that, okay, um, so he was extremely interested and then became, from others' descriptions of him, during those 12 years of teaching what he loved, his moral philosophy, the writings that he developed and worked on, and published in 1959, well into his 12 years of teaching. So what he was doing with writing that book was practicing um, running his, you know, ideas, his philosophies, his descriptions of them to an audience to get the feedback. And and imagine him live teaching us about his most original contribution to moral philosophy, right? The impartial spectator and the stories that he would have told and engaged his audience in, and probably that spellbound effect. And we do know that people traveled from far away to, to hear him that, um, the wealthy, the nobility, you know, the too rich to get a degree kids attended and took those courses, not to get a degree, but to be in Adam Smith's classes. Um, Also super important to this, I'm sure, is what he modeled to students. I mean, students look for that in teachers. They they hold teachers accountable for an awful lot. They um, are very quick to give you feedback about, well, anything that they think. And here is this genteel gentleman, incredibly well-spoken. Um, he's always described as amiable, uh, but as students would describe too, like super friendly with students. So and we didn't have some superiority complex about how scholarly he was at all. It sounds like he hung with them and chatted and probably had an open library. And and so we love students. And as sometimes awkward as he might have been described as being an, as his interaction with adults could be. And I've seen this in great teachers. Their ability to connect with students is, um, you know, kind of unusual, but it's their element. And it sounds like Smith was everything in all of that. Um, now, <laughs> to answer the second part of your question, in no way am I comparing myself to Smith, <gasps> only in the fact that I fell in love with teaching after I found a subject that I loved so much and had this interest in. And I thought, well, you know, I don't want to work in business. You know, teaching would kind of be this ideal career. I'm like, I, think, I guess I'll do that. 
and maybe I had, you know, enough of an inkling that I have this outgoing personality. I can speak anywhere and maybe that would work out well. So it wasn't, I wasn't completely thinking, yeah, we'll try it out and see if it works. But I fell in love with teaching and recognized how hard being an excellent teacher would be. And I continue to aspire to that. And it's not just about, you know, you, certainly you have to uh, be uh, have a, a sort of a mastery, a command of your subject matter, curriculum, what you're doing, what you're teaching, but continuing to um, understand learning um, and to interact with and uh, to work with students to make yourself very vulnerable um, as a teaching personality to students because of the necessity of the connection that has to take place between a teacher and student for the the absolute peak of learning. And Smith said that that teaching those years, those were the greatest years of his life. Like they were the best. He definitely tasted that feeling of hell I can only describe as the bell rings, but no one knows it's the end of the hour. We're all so involved in this engagement, this discussion, this digging into this topic, this thing that we're doing lost in the moment of learning. And um, yeah, so he certainly tasted that. What probably will have to be another discussion, Juliet, is why the heck did he leave that? And I kind of look forward to being a little bit critical of Smith on something. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I'm looking forward as well. Uh, I, I want to add, there's so much there, but I want to ask, how much would you pay to attend an Adam Smith lecture? Oh, wow. Oh, my. And which one, Juliet? And which one? I guess it's your um, pick. Your yeah. favorite? You're the one that... Oh, my gosh. Which right? one would you want to attend and how much would you pay to see it? That's oh, the question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's almost too much to answer. I would want to say, can I have 30 minutes to just like rethink about all of that? Um, I would have to say that it, it would have to be, you know, one of his, you know, very important topics. His his multiple conversations and teaching of sympathy right now we need to love not only to be loved but to be lovely and especially it's one of my favorite parts of of theory of moral sentiments is that talk about not only how we celebrate the joys of others and that's what we like to do the most but sorrows and that beautiful early into theory of moral sentiments the first three incredible chapters that i've referred to and gone back to so many times about connecting with someone else when they're in a deeply grief-stricken, sorrowful place and what our sympathy and ability to reach them as best as we can in that place by trying to put ourselves in their shoes, what that does to alleviate them of some of their own burden because they start to worry about us and how we're looking at their sorrow and somehow we, we both become better for that, of course, from our connection, but we actually do this great service to that person in their moment of sorrow, I think I would want to hear some of his early um, lectures on sympathy and his deep understanding of the interpersonal 
skills, our social being, our how he evolved, all of what he wrote about in over the first half of Theory of Moral Sentiments. How's that? I guess I'd have to attend a semester or two, Juliet. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like I could attend a lifetime. Yes, yes, but you asked me what I could pay for. <laughs> yeah, I went. I, we don't. The going rate was good, and there was no question about it. But of course, it got doubled when he uh, jumped ship. But it, I said we're going to save that. <laughs> yeah, um, and I guess we're, we're nearing the end, unfortunately. Yes. But what I kind of, um, what I what I kind of want to to leave us with is is this taste of what we're going to see later and what he learned and what you learned um mm. but what do you think from historically and reading smith and knowing his story and your experience and all of it what are the characteristics that make a particularly good teacher and how because there i feel like there are different types of teachers that, that yeah. achieve different ends. And so I guess, what are some of those to you? Yeah. Yeah, Juliet, the, the famous question you often ask your guests of, you know, what do you think differently about now? Um, I guess I'm a little bit ashamed to admit, but I'm going to go ahead and admit it. Um, what I thought made a good teacher is something that has changed a lot over the course of my quarter century and more of being a teacher, but also of observing teachers prior to that for so long. I, I think, no, I definitely thought that personality and if you will, uh, those more like mine and, and what I was embellishing there about, about how Hutchinson was described and what Adam Smith, be, the outgoing, the overt, the demonstrative, the walking up and down the aisles and not afraid to make a fool of themselves, me, right? <laughs> that is a, a teacher was an essential element to good teaching. Not that others couldn't teach well, but that, that part of it was necessary. I guess I was something I used to think. And I know now that, oh, I, I, I'm wrong, was wrong in thinking that, um, like you said, and uh, certainly uh, have recognized early, there are so many different you know, types of very good teachers. And if I were asked, and I have done this, um, to observe someone I don't know as a teacher, and what, what would I ask to see? or to watch, to give any kind of feedback about my evaluation of their ability to teach would not be looking at the teacher in the front of the room or even seated at a desk, which in my you know past history, I would think, well, that's lazy and probably not good teaching, um, is to watch the students, is to observe the learning, alert the engagement, the, the curiosity um, that's instilled. And I have come to know that there is great teaching that happens from very different personalities, um, um, the ways of behavior in the classroom and you know, certainly different curricula and activities and et cetera and everything else. So um, I, I've definitely changed my mind about um, recognizing that there's not a list of characteristics that um, you know, other than very obvious things, knowing subject matter and, you know, having a voice that can be heard, you know, things like that, um, that I I still sit in wonderment 
of all it is that makes so many different great teachers really good at the craft. What made you change your mind? Um, are, are there hmm. experiences that come to mind or moments that you you think back to when you kind of think about this this realization? It's interesting. Um, I guess in some of the more recent ones, it might be more obvious outcome stuff of thinking another thinking a certain way about another teacher, and I won't call it um, negative. Just thinking that hey, they don't have those same personality traits that I thought were truly beneficial to it. But observing very good test scores coming out of something, uh, of of a teacher, um, teacher's classroom that obviously the teacher had some influence on, but more in watching later student behavior. Students that come back to a school after they've graduated or several years in the college and that race back to see and to talk to that teacher about how they influence them at that time and what their new learning is and why they're back there talking to them. You can't make that up. You can't You can't pretend that there isn't something so magical and deeply important about that. And I came to recognize uh, very much over the um, my long experience of knowing so many teachers over time the connections and the influences that they have made on so many lives. And when they had personalities different from mine, I mean, coming back to what my problem was with an original uh, thought that there was some overarching important, more important than other characteristics. Uh, so, so we're running short on time, yeah, which is so unfortunate. <laughs> um, and we kind of already got to, the final question, but I'm going to ask yeah. you the, this okay. question that that stems off of it, and I think kind of gets at the the heart of this, and is a bit practical, um, and maybe mm. benefits me, <laughs> but hopefully, I think other people, right? Um, but first, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast for the first time, and definitely not the last time, um, oh, so and fun, sharing <laughs> all that you know about Smith and teaching and learning and all of it. Um, but what advice would you have for people who are trying to communicate ideas or new teachers or people who are kind of maybe not even formal teachers? Uh, what mm-hmm. do you think, partially based off of what we've talked about today, but even what we are mm-hmm. going to talk about in the future, what advice would you have um, in order to come in strong and and to yeah, maybe yeah. fight against those illusions we might have about teaching the the misconceptions yeah oh wow um that you have to start somewhere to not be hard on yourself that being a new teacher is has a learning curve of 5 years um that you're going to make mistakes you're going to get better and better but you're coming into it with the most important thing. And it's the desire. Um, Wow. Students can smell that from across the room, right? (laughs) A teacher Mm -hmm. that wants to be there, uh, that has decided that, yep, that this one here is what they're dedicating uh, their time and energies to. Um, They got to apologize for mistakes that are made, but they come at it, giving it their best. Um, Staying so engaged with your subject matter um, I love the way how you talked about it. it's it's really about ideas 
have constant comrades, colleagues. I work with the greatest colleagues on earth um, to go to constantly get to talk and discuss your ideas with because that's practice, getting your thinking out. Um, some people do it best through writing. Sometimes it's through discourse, conversation. I think the conversation is so critical because teaching is that give and take feedback circumstance between uh, people. Um, and uh, to, to, mm, to take the time, which you don't get much time in the first couple of years of teaching, but purposeful reflection, even if it's like two minutes after a class of this is what went well, and this is what I went well, no, you know, what, what sure didn't. I'm always trying out new things. And on occasion, it's like, yeah, no, we won't do that that same way again. Um, because that's what learning is, uh, to make sure you go into it being yourself. You can't be anyone else. Um, and to, uh, and to recognize you can sure love doing it. It is an incredible um, way of life. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests for their time and insight. I'd also like to thank you for listening to The Great Antidote podcast. It means a lot. The Great Antidote is sound engineered by Rich Goyette. If you have any questions, any guests or topic recommendations, please feel free to reach out to me at greatantidote at libertyfund.org. Thank you.